Welcome to the Missing Chapter Podcast, where you will hear some of the least known, obscure, and entertaining stories the history textbooks left out. Starring Phil Horander and Phil Schaff. If one were to take a walk in Lower Manhattan, in New York City's bustling financial district, between the intersection of Wall Street and Broad Street, they may not notice something peculiar in the side of one of the city's most prominent buildings. Ranging in size from small, missing chunks of limestone to deeper, baseball-sized pits, the J.P. Morgan Building's stone facade is littered with pockmarked scars, a constant reminder of one of the city's and country's greatest terrorist attacks in the 20th century. But this wasn't the result of shrapnel from the 9-11 attacks that gripped our nation in 2001. This was damage inflicted from an oft-forgotten attack earlier on, in September of 1920. One in which the J.P. Morgan building was never repaired, and one in which an assailant was never convicted. In the years that followed World War I and during the height of the first Red Scare, the attack on Wall Street was unlike anything America's largest city had ever seen, and would see for over 80 years. In its wake, it left more than just damaged skyscrapers, but carnage and a toll of human lives and a mystery that historians still debate today. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome, everybody. This is Phil Schaff. I'm here with Phil Horner. We are now on episode 25 stock market explosion. And uh, before we get into our episode and the details we have laid out for you, uh, we would love to introduce the coffee that we have brewed today. Phil, take it away. Yeah. And and the coffee that we have today is kind of special. I want to give a shout out to my parents who are avid uh, Missing Chapter podcast listeners and avid coffee drinkers. They went ahead and ordered a bag of Black Rifle coffee for us and delivered it the other day. It's a pumpkin flavored and it is really, really good. And they had learned about the Black Rifle Coffee Company on a book that they were reading. And it's a great coffee, but through my own research, I found out a little bit more about this great company. They're, they're entirely veteran owned uh, in terms of a, a company in the workers, Phil. Um, their mission statement is, is fantastic. They try to employ as many veterans as they can. Um, they're home based in Manchester, Tennessee and Salt Lake City, Utah. We've enjoyed it all morning. We've had people coming in and out of our classroom enjoying it. And really, the only thing better than a good cup of coffee is the good brand and good company and and a good, solid foundation behind it. We love our veterans. We love this coffee. Yeah, we love the mission statement. Yeah. And I actually love the branding, too. I mean, there's they have a lot of stuff in the like Bass Pro Shops and everything that, uh, you know, hats, clothing line. Their merchandise is is actually really cool. They even have um, coffee, uh, like bags, like coffee tea Mm -hmm. bags almost which are pretty interesting. Yeah, and their website is blackriflecoffee.com. And, and if you get on their website, it's very interactive. You get to meet the people behind the brand. And uh, like you said, Phil, they have a lot of other stuff, a lot of good historic um, stories that they tie into to their company as well. Love it. So Love very it cool. And hopefully, you know, you guys, uh, the, the listeners at home will enjoy the story that we have prepared for you today as much as we're enjoying the coffee. 
as a lifelong New Yorker, someone who was born and raised in New York and, and continues to work and live here today, I'm a little bit surprised that I wasn't aware of this story. But really, I, I don't know how it was missed from the history books. I don't know how, you know, growing up in New York, albeit not New York City, but right. upstate New York, um, I didn't come across this sooner than I had. And I think you, you bring up a good point because a lot of our listeners, uh, as many of our listeners are local, a lot are not. A lot are, are, are out of state um, and even out of the country now that we're in 27 different countries. But I think it's important to note that when everyone um, thinks of New York, when we say, mm -hmm. hey, I'm from New York, immediately their mind gravitates towards a picture of being in New York City. Absolutely. And being in upstate New York, central New York, uh, we are really not anywhere near that kind of city realm. We right. are rural through and through. Right, right. Far from it, like you said. But let's get to the story. And um, I think the other thing that, that kind of resonates through this is maybe it's it's what preceded this event and what this event leads up to a few years later on that kind of overshadowed some of what happened. Okay. So we'll see. Lower Manhattan's financial district uh, in the 1920s was really the epicenter of American capitalism. And the southeast corner of Wall Street and Broad Street was then arguably the most important junction, dominated by the headquarters of J.P. Morgan and Company. A financial superpower, J.P. Morgan had come out of World War I as the single most influential banking in institution in the world. Wow. Yeah, wow. and across the street stood the U.S. sub-treasury and the assay office, which was another trading house. And then the bustling New York Stock Exchange was just located a stone's throw down the road. Right. So in a very small kind of um, packed together block, you had a number of different important, crucial trading uh, institutions. It's, it's just concentrated in that in that little hub, right. that financial district of downtown. Right. Yeah. Even in 1920, things were very close together. On September 16th, 1920, the corner, as it was referred to by those who worked there, was its usual hive of activity. Afternoon rain was in the forecast, but that didn't stop people from congregating outside to talk, grab their lunches, and scurry around on their daily routines. The bells from the nearby Trinity Church rang at the noonday hour, and the streets were clogged with automobiles, messenger boys, as well as bank clerks and stockbrokers. A single tattered horse-drawn wagon inconspicuously made its way in front of the assay office, going unnoticed in the usual daily bustle. The driver set the brake, dropped the reins, and jogged down the street unnoticed. Huh. Okay. You got my, uh, you got my attention there. Right. And the final toll from the Trinity Church bells still hung in the air at 12.01 when the 100 pounds of dynamite concealed in the wagon detonated with a deafening roar. J.P. Morgan employee Andrew Dunn would later tell investigators, quote, that was the loudest noise I've ever heard in my life. It was enough to knock you out by itself. Wow. And, and evidently his recalling of this was accurate because the blast was powerful enough to derail a streetcar over a block away. And how close was he? Do you know? He, well, the JP Morgan building was essentially um, adjacent to, to where the, okay. the horse right. had, had brought the, uh, the wagon. Um, it sent debris screaming into the sky that would later stain buildings upwards to 34 floors up. Oh, my gosh. What was left of the poor horse recruited for the attack landed hundreds of yards away. Oh, that's gruesome. Which oh is kind goodness. of a gruesome yeah. Yeah, image. Interestingly, stockbroker Joseph P. Kennedy, father of future President John F. Kennedy, 
was lifted clear off his feet by the concussion as he worked in an adjacent office. And I did some research. John um, F. Kennedy would have been three years old at the time. Wow. And we're still five years removed from Robert having been born. Oh, right. So, okay. yeah. you know, you think about that that ripple effect that we've seen in, in previous episodes. If anything had, had happened to Joseph rather than him just being knocked off his feet, wow. American history certainly would have played out much differently, I, I imagine. Those people who happened to be closer to the wagon were engulfed in clouds of smoke and flames and torn to pieces by hundreds of pounds of metal fragments. Estimated to most likely be iron sash weights, which is important to this okay. and important to the investigation. That's why I mention it. They'd all been intentionally piled on top of the bomb to act as shrapnel. A witness later recounted to the New York Sun newspaper, I saw the explosion, a column of smoke shoot up into the air and then saw people dropping all around me, some of them with their clothing on fire. Following the initial explosion, a storm of glass rained down on people from all over the shattered windows. The lobby of the J.P. Morgan building was drenched by debris. One piece struck 24-year-old clerk William Joyce in the head, killing him instantly as he sat at his desk. Oh, my goodness. For the World War I veterans in Manhattan that day, the scene was eerily reminiscent of the battlefields of Europe years earlier. Wall Street became a no-man's land, littered with fire, the charred bodies of victims, building debris, and broken glass. Smoke hung thick with soot as the cacophony of sounds began to bring people back to reality, the screaming, the emergency sirens. Reporter George Weston, who'd escaped injury by diving into an open doorway, recalled that the carnage surrounded him, looked like bodies, most of them silent in death, lay nearby. And as I gazed horror-stricken at the sight, one of these forms, half-naked and seared with burns, started to rise. It struggled, then toppled, and fell lifeless into the gutter. I mean, these are really graphic, horrible descriptions. Right. And we just got done talking about World War One and World War II. It does sound like a war scene. It does like it sounds like something out of war-torn Europe. So I guess my question is, I mean, this happened in 1920. Right. The war ends in 1918. Is one of the reasons why we're not hearing much about this? This is the first time I've ever heard of this. Right. So is this is this one of the reasons why we, we haven't heard much of this? is because it was overshadowed by the World War One that ended in 1918, but then, of course, the crash that happened in, in, in the stock market in 1929. And that's what I'm thinking. That's kind of where, where my mind went to as I did the research, and I'm thinking, how did I not know more about this, like I said in the beginning? And, and it, it's all kind of enmeshed together, too. There's What's going on in other parts of the world is going to come into play with the investigation, and certainly what happens in Europe in the the years to come, right. will start to overshadow some of this, especially then, the investigation. And then you have the Roaring Twenties, which right. maybe would, would be more of a, a positive outlook, and maybe it just right. hasn't, hasn't been mentioned in the history textbook. I don't know. Maybe I'm speculating. But. No, and not to get too far ahead of myself here, but I think part of it, too, is the way New York responded to this. Okay. It's almost like they wanted to put it past them or be behind okay. them, rather. Yep. So an estimated 2,000 New York City policemen and Red Cross nurses begin to converge on Wall Street and start to sift through the wreckage and begin the initial investigation. Trading at the stock exchange, of course, you know, ground to a halt immediately. The initial blast killed 30 men and women, wow. and another eight would later die of their injuries. So 38 people die you know, over that time period of the initial blast and, and uh, the next few days because of it, because that's of a, their injuries. That's, a, that's quite a few. That's a significant number. I know we, right. we can, we'll, we'll initially compare that to the number like a 9-11. Right. 
but that's that's hard to do the comparison. But because of New York City, the explosion, that kind of thing. I mean, thinking that you know, 1993 explosion at the tr- World Trade Center compared to this. I mean, right. this is this yeah. is severe. And in addition to the 38 people who would who would die of their injuries, hundreds more were injured. Hundreds were injured from or suffered from severe burns. They were maimed from flying glass and shrapnel. In fact, Phil, the 1920 attack on the New York Stock Exchange District would remain the deadliest terror incident on American soil until the Oklahoma City bombing some 75 years later. Oh, my gosh. I never knew that. In addition, investigators and authorities struggled to explain who carried out the attack and what their motives could possibly have been. Initially, the, the belief was that the Morgan Bank, which some critics claimed had profited unfairly, off the horrors of World War One had been the target, okay. Right, which kind of makes sense chronologically, yeah. right? Yeah. However, almost all of the bomb's victims were blue-collared workers, like I said, clerks, messengers, stenographers. In fact, J.P. Morgan Jr. himself had been thousands of miles away in Europe at the time of the explosion. Jeez. Um, the quote from the St. Louis Post Dispatch: "There was no objective except general terrorism." All right, and the bomb was not directed against any particular person or property. It was directed against the public, anyone who had happened to be near or any property in the neighborhood. And I think to myself, that's interesting enough in 1920, because we usually don't associate terrorism and acts of terrorism like this being described until at least the 60s, the 70s, and obviously into the 21st century. So this seems like it kind of, it was ahead of its time, so to speak. Yeah. By very definition, your description is terrorism. Is terrorism. It's not to... It's to inflict a movement, you know, it's to inflict a, a, a punishing, um, menacing terror through the public. And I right. Think that's exactly what it did. But what's interesting is you usually associate terrorism as having some sort of a purpose or to bring attention to some sort of a cause. Yeah. And that seems to be left out of the equation. Wow. So what's peculiar is that there's no obvious target. There's no obvious person stepping up or group stepping up, taking credit for any of this. Initial suspicions center on the first Red Scare. That was in full swing in the United States during this time. You tend to forget the first Red Scare. It didn't receive as much attention. Um, This is when the communist Bolsheviks, led by Vladimir Lenin, had overthrown the Russian aristocracy. They'd assassinated the Tsar and his family and had established a Marxist regime in the years prior. We tend to jump ahead to the second Red Scare, post-World War II, McCarthyism. But the first Red Scare certainly is something that they're considering when it comes to motive. Well, I wanted to mention that too, because as you were talking about the Red Scare, I'm thinking to myself, well, it's 1920, it's too right. early. And then, yeah, you, you brought that to light. So I'm glad you explained that. Yep. And this one's a little bit shorter, um, but it's certainly something that that gripped the United States in, in a good portion of the early 1920s. Anti-capitalist, communist, and anarchist groups had been blamed for dozens of other bombings dating back to the late 19th century. These suspicions were only magnified when on September 17th, when postal workers discovered a stack of pamphlets that had been dropped in financial district mailboxes just minutes before the blast occurred. They read, Remember, we will not tolerate any longer. Free the political prisoners, or it will be sure death for all of you, American anarchist fighters. The letters resembled earlier flyers to those that had circulated after an earlier terror campaign from June 1919 when bombs had been detonated in several U.S. cities. Since those attacks, authorities had accredited these plots to a gang called the Gallianists, who were anti-government Italian anarchists, led by a very charismatic explosive expert named Luigi Galliani. He'd been deported the previous year, but many details of the Wall Street bomb, 
in particular, the use of iron weights as shrapnel, which I mentioned earlier, right. match the models and fit the MO that he and his followers had constructed in the past. So we're starting to narrow down right. the cause of this thing and the motive of it. At least that's what the authorities think at this point. We'll see where some of these but it's some of these leads essentially go. Essentially speculation at this point. Correct. Okay. So unfortunately for the police, the flyers were the closest anyone ever came to claiming responsibility for the attack. Agents from what was called at this point the Bureau of Investigation, which would have later become the FBI, invested over three years trying to cr crack the case and at least identify the driver of the wagon, which they never were able to either. But the Galleonist trail went cold as did dozens of others involving everyone from trade unionists to the American Communist Party to even Lenin himself. One of the stranger theories, Phil, involved Edward Fisher, a mentally unstable tennis champion who had warned people on multiple occasions to stay away from Wall Street in the days leading up to the bombing. Once investigators learned Fisher had issued several previous Wall Street warnings, each of which he had supposedly received through God and, as he put it, the air, he was dropped as a suspect and promptly admitted into a psychiatric hospital. So immediately, even though his premonitions were essentially correct, immediately they, they said, this guy's nuts. We got exactly. to get him away. Okay. And it, it gives you an idea of just how, I mean, they're, they're grasping at straws. You know, they, it might be Vladimir Lenin who just came to power in the Soviet Union. It might be Edward Fisher, a, a previous tennis champion. They really don't have any clues. It, it is the epitome of a cold case. That's it's shocking to me, especially because I envision the financial district, Wall Street. Uh, you know, I, I envision cameras galore. Right. So in, in our time period, as we, we've said in the past, our side of history, it, it's hard for me to imagine something like this taking place and not having more eyewitness testimony. Right. And I think I think that really alludes to where we are in 1920 in terms of forensics, in terms of technology. A lot of the eyewitnesses. Um, were either, you know, either killed or, yeah. you know, injured during the explosion. They didn't see much because of of injuries or or the fact that they were, you know, blown over. So it, it didn't really leave the police and authorities with really much to go with. W. Edwards Deming once wrote, the world is drowning in information, but slow in acquisition of knowledge. Help spread information by following us on Instagram and liking us on Facebook today. Thank you for listening to the Missing Chapter podcast with us, Phil Schaff and Phil Horander. Well, Phil, first of all, thank you for bringing this to our attention. I, I knew nothing about this, and I think a lot of our listeners uh, you know, didn't know much about this either. I, I am really curious, and I have some questions here about this, because in the middle of the break, I, I Google imaged uh, the Wall Street explosion in 1920, and it's it's kind of what I expected, but at a different level. I mean, I expected to see some like Model Ts and that kind of thing, which I do, but they're all flipped over. I mean, you are talking, like you said earlier, just mass pandemonium. And right. It's hard to to take that and capture that in a in a picture of from 1920, mm -hmm. but you can totally see um, chaos and pandemonium take place in one of the more popular districts of, of New York City. So I think the questions that I, I have is, I guess, when you have all these kind of just speculative leads, they're they're guessing at this point, like how, what is their, their strongest lead and how long does it take for them to really say, I think this is where 
the cause actually lies. Right. And I think you're you're kind of at a point, and I'm guessing our listeners are too, exactly where the police were in 1920. More questions than answers, essentially. Right. Yeah. And, and looking at these pictures, that was a lot of destruction. It's still a very closed in area of the city, lower Manhattan. And the destruction was widespread. I mean, that blast must have funneled its way through those through those streets and up those buildings. And the, the pictures we showed on social media leading up to this episode, mm -hmm. you know, it shows you that there's some damage right. uh, to the J.P. Morgan building. But I don't think it really does justice of, of the pandemonium that really ensued uh, after the blast. Oh, absolutely. And the last official inquiry into the Wall Street bombing took place, Phil, in 1944, 24 years after the actual detonation of that bomb. So that actually kind of makes more sense to me now because the whole time I'm like, why don't we know more about this? Well, we said earlier, World War I is taking place and it's just ending in 1918. So people are still recovering, you know? Then you have, of course, the stock market crash in the 20s. Uh, you have the roaring 20s in the middle of that as well. And now you're really <laughs> at the height of World War II so you kind of see that a minor, well, I shouldn't say minor, but an explosion in, in Wall Street is kind of overshadowed by the two huge world wars. Right. I think where it happened in the timeline of U.S. history, you're exactly right. By 1944, I mean, we're talking Normandy. We're talking the height of World War II and more specifically American involvement to 1945 and post-World War II. This is going to get pretty much lost in the shuffle, I think, for lack yeah. of a better phrase. The FBI re-examines the decades-old case to 1944 and concludes that the explosion was most likely the work of, we're going back to the Italian anarchists or Italian terrorists. Okay. That seems to be their best lead and where the, the evidence points. Some investigators have since pointed to a Galeonist named Mario Buda as the most likely culprit. Buda was an associate of the famed anarchist Niccolo Sacco and Bartolome Vanzetti. The theory is that Buddha may have orchestrated the Wall Street attack as retribution for Sacco and Vanzetti's September 11th, 1920 indictment for murder in a robbery gone wrong. Wow. And records here indicate that Buddha fled to Italy shortly after the bombing and would remain there until after his death. Neither he nor anyone else was ever charged with the September 16th, 1920 bombing on Wall Street. So we, the motive is still up in the air. The, the police kind of have their, their ideas, but no one was ever charged and no one was ever punished for a crime that killed, you know, 38 people and injured hundreds more. And I don't anticipate after being 100 years right. old now that ever, you know, reenacting in a case like that. I wouldn't imagine. No, especially with everything that that city has gone through. But it's interesting to know in typical American and specifically New York City fashion, Wall Street would reopen only a day after the explosion uh, of course. Right. Yeah, of course. And they were determined, wrote the New York Sun, to, quote, show the world that business will proceed as usual dis despite bombs. OK, and that, and again, that resonates <laughs> September 11th, 1993, right. the you know, the earlier bombing in New York City. Bandaged and bruised office workers returned to their desks and all signs of the blast were swept away, which included, sadly, pieces of any evidence that might have helped solve this still cold case. Wow. So. You know, it is a story of, of tragedy, of course. It's a story of curiosity. It's a story that really doesn't have a an ending per se. Right. However, I, I just love the fact that you brought up the American resiliency, mm -hmm. the New York City resiliency. So even though there there may not be a, a true end to this and we, we can't really close this case, at least we see some positivity emerge from the wreckage. And Phil, perfect segue into the ending here that that afternoon, the day after this occurred, 
thousands of New Yorkers descended on the financial district in the scene of the disaster and joined in the singing of America the Beautiful as well as the national anthem. The backdrop to these renditions stood a scarred J.P. Morgan building. You referenced that earlier, which to this day remains the lone monument to 38 lives lost. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, I'm Phil Schaff. And I'm Phil Horander. Another chapter has been added to the history textbooks. <laughs>